What's up, heroes? Welcome to the Producer Life Podcast, Episode 80. I've got an incredible guest for you this week, but before we get started, I wanted to give you a couple of quick updates. First, my Chill Pepper remix of Tiesto's The Business is out on YouTube. If you're a fan of Tiesto, House Music, or Red Hot Chili Peppers, go check that out on youtube.com slash house ninja music, and make sure you hit subscribe while you're there. Also, last month, Mike Zimmerlich from 8020 Records interviewed me for the 8020 Show podcast. That episode's going to be airing on Thursday, August 5th. Just search for 8020 Show on your favorite podcatcher. Our guest today is none other than Mega Ran, a nerdcore rapper and Guinness Book of World Record holder who fuses hip-hop with gaming and geek culture, creating infectious beats and memorable music. Mega Ran's music and story have been featured on CNN, ABC, NBC, ESPN, Tosh O, and WWE Wrestling. Four of his albums have placed in the top 200 Billboard charts, and he has more than 64,000 monthly plays on Spotify. Megaran is also an experienced podcaster, variously hosting the Random Encounters podcast, Matt Mania, and most recently, Castle Grayskull Radio. In 2020, he published his autobiography, Dream Master, on Amazon, which already has more than 100 five-star reviews. In his brutally honest, introspective, and entertaining book, he talks about his incredible journey from the streets of Philly to stages across the world and the Guinness Book of World Records. In this interview, we talk about his book, drawing inspiration from pop culture, studio gear, useful websites for indie artists, and he shares his process for booking your own tours. But first, cue the intro music. All right, Mega Ran, welcome to the Producer Life Podcast. Yo, thanks for having me, man. This is this is awesome. Well, I, I really appreciate it. This is I, I feel like more than any other interviewee that I've ever talked to, I feel like I I know you a little bit because you are the first one I've ever read an entire book about. Um <laughs> and it was it was great. Your uh your autobiography, Dream Master, was was phenomenal. Um what what um what made you decide that you were ready to write your own autobiography? Wow. I was, I've been working on and writing these stories for years, just life lessons from the road, things like that. And uh, I really felt like I had a lot of good stuff and I was just like, well, what am I going to do with these? And um, someone's like, well, it's time to write a book, you know, and I would have done it maybe, I don't know, maybe five, six years from now. But I think just being at home for the pandemic just gave me a lot of time to tighten it up. And I thought this is a good time to get it out there just to tell these stories. I can always write a second book, a third book. You know, uh, I just didn't want to sit around collecting these stories forever. And I thought that I finally had time because normal situations, I would never be home as much as I was. Uh, so therefore, I would be on the road probably, you know, 150 days a year just doing tours. So having that time at home, it gave me a lot of time to create and finish this book up the way that I wanted it to be done. So I was like, what are the odds I'm going to get this kind of free time again? So we just started working on it. Got yeah, it. it you did a phenomenal job with it. And it's uh, really well reviewed on Amazon. And I, as I was reading it, one of the things that struck me is just how candid you were about everything, you know, right down to some legal entanglements. Um, as, as you were writing it, did you, did you ever pause and think, yeah, do I really, do I really want to share this? Is this part of my, my brand, I guess, or was it just, oh, yeah. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to be open with my fans and I'm going to share it all. All the time. I, I, I thought about that a whole lot, but, um, but I think honesty was the most important thing. And, uh, you know, I think about people that are my heroes, like Martin Luther King or, you know, people like that. There are stories that come out later about them that maybe don't paint them in the best light, but they're the truth. And it lets you know that that person is human. And I think that that can be inspirational in its own way. So letting people know, hey, when I was in college, I did a bunch of stupid things, you know, or, uh, you know, just what like being being broken, desperate, you know, can do to people, I think is um, uh, a good lesson, you know, to learn. And so, um, and yeah, people do consider me kind of a, a goody two shoes and maybe being bad isn't a part of my, my brand per se, 
but but I'm human and I, I made some mistakes. I've taken some losses, you know, and I, I'm just at a, I'm at a position of just no fear. You know, I, I really feel like there aren't any regrets in life because everything that happened happened for a reason and it made me a better person and it gave me a better story to write about. Yeah, I, I, you you certainly drew a lot of lessons from your your life experience. And, and I think a lot of the uh, so much of the book deals with your perseverance through adversity, you know, not only in your growth as a musician, but also your growth as as a person. That said, are there were any of the experiences that you talked about in the book? Are there any ones that if you could go back and do it again, you would you would change something about it? No, I don't think so. I think every experience made me who I am. I mean, if anything, I would have probably paid a little more attention in high school and early in college and, you know, and really had some tough conversations with like advisors and people like that, because I went into school thinking this was the only way, you know, like uh, you got to get a college education or there's just nothing else out there for you, you know, and in the in the process of me thinking that, I wasted a lot of time. I cost my mother a lot of money. You know, I I made a lot of mistakes. And I think if I had maybe just talked these things through with some people and thought it out a bit more, I could have I could have gone about it a little different, maybe taken a year off, just sorted my sorted myself out, got some ideas together, um, entered into my creative space a little earlier. I was just very afraid, you know, so uh, I think that's about it. Any situation where fear kind of stopped me from taking a step, you know, towards my, my goals and dreams. I think those are the the only regrets I have because, you know, I think that's the, the main goal I want to push through this book is that, you know, there's no, there's no place for, for fear. Once you feel it and you get over it, you know, it's, you're unbeatable, you know? So you take that fear and you use it to power the motivation and you want that adrenaline to push you through the next thing. So that was really a lot of what I noticed, like a common theme in a lot of these stories were just things that I was afraid of or afraid of trying or afraid of doing that wind up working out for me. Obviously, you've got a lot of terrific and some horrific stories in, in your autobiography. Can you tell my listeners maybe one or two of your favorites about overcoming a, a difficult time? Wow. Um I mean, there's so many, but I think just being a a young kid in general, um, I was just telling a guy, um, my trainer this morning about a situation that isn't even in the book, but, but that I used to use as a really good lesson. I used to teach middle school. And, um, Mm -hmm. and so I, we used to do uh, ethics classes in the morning, you know? And um, so it was time to talk to them about just like being a good person and, um, you know, sometimes uh, just taking into consideration, you know, what someone else could be going through that you don't see. And um, and I use this example when I talk to the kids that I was on a bus one day in Philadelphia and these kids are in the back of the bus just being really rowdy, being rude, disrespectful to elders, to anyone who got on the bus, just yelling at them, cursing, all kinds of things. And one gentleman decided to to kind of step up for those, you know, elderly people and just yell like, shut that noise up in the back or whatever. And, uh, and the kids kind of froze up and they're like, Oh man, that, that sounded scary. You know, like we didn't see who it was, but I'm maybe sitting in the middle. And so his voice kind of booms over past me. And, uh, a, a few blocks later, this guy's getting off the bus and he has to exit at the back. So the guy walks to the back and he's about to exit the bus. And he looks back at the kids. and He's like, yeah, I said it. Like you guys need to shut up and, be respectful or whatever. Like he was maybe, maybe not as rude as they were, but he was very forceful and very uh, kind of threatening with his tone. And, um, and then the bus stops and the doors go open and it's time for him to exit the bus. And one of the kids in the back, as this guy's walking, just like straight ahead, he he gets off the bus and just continues to walk down the street and um, doesn't ever look back. And the kid on the bus, one of the kids from the bus jumps up out of his seat and goes to the back door and pulls out a gun. And he's like, oh, okay. He's talking to us. We'll show him. And at this moment, I just freeze. And behind him, all of his friends are like, no, 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 no. Chill. Come back, come back, come back, come back. And they all invite him back. And 
And uh, he's like, oh, all right, all right, fine, fine, whatever. And the guy, I looked out the window, the guy's still walking, still walking straight ahead, has no idea his life literally was just spared, you know, by one of his friends uh, who just said, nah, nah, not now, don't do it. And uh, and it just made me think about, you know, a lesson that I always teach my my you know students is that you just don't know who you're talking to on the street you know so try to consider that someone could have just had a really bad day and could could be you know one rude comment away from either snapping or one nice comment away from you know just kind of breaking down you know so i think it's a, a lesson that i'm going to this is a story that's going to be in the audiobook version so you get a bit of a, a preview oh, here. Okay. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I'm working on the audio book now, which is going to have like two additional chapters with like some stories and lessons I've learned, but that's uh, awesome. so that was like the most present on the tip of my tongue right now because I'm, I'm recording it tomorrow. Um, but yeah, like there's so many times like that where I've experienced things and, you know, if one little thing may be gone a different way, you know, the story might've been completely different, you know, and, yeah. uh, and that was just one of them. But yeah. Yeah. You've, you've had some close calls. I, Oh, I do think for the audiobook you should absolutely include those sound effects. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. Yeah. You're, you're a great storyteller. I think that'll, uh, you're, are, you're doing the audio for it. Oh yeah, for sure. When I talked to the publisher, they were like, Oh, you want to do an audiobook? That's cool. Uh, let us know who you want to hire to read the book. And I'm like, what? Hire? <laughs> I can read. You know, and uh, and they're like, oh, OK, well, you know, and they kind of they kind of struck my ego a bit. They were like, well, we don't have that many clients who are like notable people that want to read their own book. And uh, I think that would be um like a selling point. And I'm like, I only want to read audiobooks from the author, you know, like, yeah, that's just kind of how I am. Like, I don't want to read a book if someone else is reading it. I'm not I'm not super into that, Um, even though I think Will Wheaton reads Ready Player One, which is pretty good. Oh, okay. Yeah, that is that is my favorite. I think that is my favorite movie of all time. So, wow. I mean, yeah. it, it, I love the book. I don't. I don't love the movie as much, but but that's uh that's awesome because of all the really cool like pop culture references, the '80s stuff, the video games, the retro stuff. It's um it's super special to me. So huh. yeah, it's hard. All all the different throwbacks. So yeah. Although they didn't have any Mega Man in there. No Mega Man, sadly, sadly. <laughs> talking, talking about video games and, and your, uh, obviously a lot of your uh, connection and your inspiration and your name all comes from this series of video games. And, and you, you talked in the book about your connection with Japan. You even called it, I think, your Mecca at one point. Talk to me about the relationship you've had with uh, Japan and Japanese culture over the years. Well, what I really love about Japan is that the things that um, kids my age, you know, 80s babies grew up loving and idolizing and playing with and seeing on, you know, television screens or cartoons or video games, um, while people in America and our elders told us, you know, to sit those things down and that they're, they're, child, they're childish things that we need to move on from, when you step foot in Japan, those, those things, those figures are front and center. You know, they're very proud of those things that they've created. You know, I, I've gone to a grocery store and seen like Sailor Moon, you know, standees out front, you know, welcoming you to the store. So to be able to see that much of an emphasis on the things that I love in that town, I think, is what makes it to me so special. Because I grew up all my life with people telling me video games aren't going to get you anywhere, like anime, cartoons, like stop doing that stuff. It's a waste of time. You know, it's kid stuff. And uh and now, like Japan, they love it. And yeah. they also recognize it, you know, and um, and highlight it. And they're very proud of their history and their things that they've created. And, uh, I, you know, we all should be proud of the cool, like iconic figures that that we've created and um, that are still a part of people's lives and, and inspiring them to this day. You know, so it's really cool to to see. So I think that's that was the number one thing. I mean, the food there is amazing. There's that. 
I mean, come on, you could just turn a corner and see Godzilla just, you know, somewhere like that's really cool. Yeah. Um, or the the giant Gundam robot uh, yeah. downtown Tokyo. I, I saw your picture of that. I, I got a picture of myself there some years ago. It's uh, it's uh, amazing. Yeah, it's really cool, man. And like just to see like that's it, like that's the, the literal physical manifestation of like the things that we as kids grew up thinking like, wow, this could be a real thing. And Japan went and did it. You know, yeah. so it's uh, it's really cool to see. I still think I think that thing is like a real weapon of some sort. I, I <laughs> you can't convince me otherwise that if it goes down out there, a pilot is going to get into that thing and it's going to take off. <laughs> it it sure looks real. It, it really does. They you know we we get uh, statues of our forefathers and they get giant robots. So it's pretty cool, right? You know. Um, what it's interesting to me, you know, how you're you've sort of remixed the Mega Man mythos and stories and you've you've turned it into your own almost art form in this this nerdcore movement. I mean, obviously, there's a bunch of different artists that are involved with nerdcore, but um, the way that you have uh, sort of honored the Mega Man tradition and turned it into something that that you own, too. In, in the book, you had a quote, you said, settling down means death for a creator. How, how has that applied to you and your career with as Mega Ran? Wow. Yeah. That quote is from Kiji Inafune, the guy who created Mega Man. And um, he wrote this like giant open letter when he quit Capcom, which was the company that gave him like his first big break. And he created Mega Man with them and a bunch of other great, uh, you know, characters. And they wanted him to basically move into like a supervisory position where he would just oversee a team and not create. And uh, and he refused. He's like, I can't do that. Like, you can't put me out to pasture. You know, like he felt he likened it to death. You know, it's like it's almost like saying like the racehorse can't run anymore. So, you know, let's just take him out back and, you know, to the to behind the ear, you know. So that's. And I understand that a person who's created something that's so iconic and has been creative and probably still has ideas that just, you know, that he just hasn't able to been able to get out with Capcom. Um, yeah, he felt like for me to settle into this position would be death for a creative. And, and I agree. Some people probably can transition and hop into, you know, a supervisory position or a non-creative position. Um, I have people tell me that all the time, like, I think you'd be a good teacher now. You can go back and. Uh, teach business classes, tell, tell like, independent artists maybe how to how to navigate these spaces. Um, but I'm like, I still want to create. Like, I still got things in me, you know? And they're like, oh, well, you can create during your off seasons and off time and still tour and still travel. Like, I really consider myself like a lifelong creative. Like, I think that this is something that I'll be doing in some way, shape or form, you know, for the rest of my life. And um, I can't imagine a time where it's just like, just sit over there and critique those guys' creations, you know? And it's like, <laughs> mm, that sounds a lot like death, you know? And yeah. uh, and so that 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 actual quote inspired me big time in order to like quit my job and to really chase this, this dream and this career because I just didn't want to settle down as a, as a creative person. Yeah, and... I, I am amazed at how prolific you are. Um, if I'm not mistaken, you have the Guinness Book of Records for the most Mega Man inspired tracks. You have 130 plus different tracks now, all yes. sort of spun off from the Mega Man mythos. Yeah, yeah. And, and basically it all started from me trying to create something where where there was no thing initially, you know, where... Um, I initially colored Mega Man black and made him a black guy in the helmet. And like, it caused a bit of an uproar on the internet, which I thought was great. But at the same time, like <laughs> all I was doing was just inserting myself into a space where I had never been seen, you know? And, um, and later I started reading more into that concept and the concept is um, called Afrofuturism, you know, where there's like space stories that, that are specifically involving the lives of people of color. You know, and because for whatever reason, all the time that we grew up in every space story, space soap opera, space cartoon we ever watched, we never saw people of color, you know. So it, it just, you know, made someone think like, wow, like 
are there just no black people in space, you know? And, uh, and so it made people start creating things just to kind of see themselves and help with representation and visualization. And that's really what I wanted to do by putting mega coloring mega man's face black, you know, and, uh, it caused a lot of uproar, but at the end of the day, I think the conversation needed to be had of like, why can't a hero be black, you know? And maybe his, his problems, his, his things that he has to fix are different from the traditional mega man. So I'm not mega man. I'm mega ran, you know, it's way different, (laughs) you know, totally, totally different. Um, so yeah, I really just enjoyed being able to insert, you know, myself or people who look like me in a space where we had never really been, you know? And I noticed it when I went out and started playing my first gigs as Mega Ran, you know, I'm playing in spaces that have been primarily, you know, white dudes, which is fine, you know, but I realized like, wow, I may be the only POC face or voice you see or hear, you know? So that means I got to take some time to, to work in a little bit of medicine with the, with the candy, if you know what I mean? Because this is a time that I can maybe have some conversations with you, whether I'm on stage or after post show, just being able to talk to people about things that they may not understand. And there's a lot about that in the book as well as like the fear of being my whole self, you know, being Raheem versus being Mega Ran. And, um, and I've definitely had, you know, some come to Jesus moments with that, where it's like, well, you got to give your all and be your whole self or else you'll never be fully satisfied. Yeah. Do you feel like as you're trying to reach an audience that's primarily white and you're a person of color, do you feel like you have to, I don't know, alter the message or change the way you present yourself in any way? Or is, is there some, I don't know, translation error? I used to feel that way. I was like, Oh, I can't, I can't use too much slang. They may not understand it or things like (laughs) that. And then like, I had to kind of like slap myself and be like, don't be silly. Like this is, this is fine. You know? Um, But yeah, I have at times felt like, Oh, I got to kind of be, I guess, more universally acceptable, you know, like you have to smile more as a, as a, black man and not be angry and not cuss and not, you know, not dress in a threatening way. Um, you know, and I used to subscribe to that, you know, I felt like I want this to be anti-rap, you know, like I know what you think when you think rapper, you think a guy with a bandana and a big chain on and his pants hanging down. So I'm going to be the opposite of that. My pants are going to be way up. I'm going to (laughs) have good posture, you know, and be clean cut and smiling, you know, and, and I was just like, well, that's kind of damaging, you know, and I, and I didn't even realize that I was playing right into it. And I was just like, no, no, no. I, because I'd have conversations with people and they're like, oh, well, you know, you you're like black, but like not like that, you know. And I'm like, oh, boy, you know, where are we going with this? And we get to some awkward territories. So, um, you know, I had some other friends over the years, thankfully, like Nerdcore per se has definitely like um become a diverse group of, of, of men, women, and those beyond the binary even. And, um, it's just been a great group of folks. Um, so therefore I feel like the tolerance issue is is not a thing, you know, with us and the the diversity is there. And so at the same time, I want people to absolutely be sure that when they hear me, that they know that they're hearing an African-American man who's speaking from his perspective, you know? So, I never want to feel like I'm dumbing down or changing who I am in order to be heard or accepted by anybody. That would be like the worst thing as a creative. I think that's worse than not creating at all. It's just like forced to being forced to create something that's not who you are, or what you want to represent or anything like that. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think you, you had a quote that really resonated with me. It said um, the worst thing you can hear is that I don't really see color when I look at you. Because you want people to see your color and see this is who you are and you're being authentic with them. Yeah, don't. That means you have to see my experience, you know, and I think that's a big part of that. When people say I don't see color. Well, I think maybe you should, because you also need to be able to empathize with people's experiences that where some of those things may have been a result of their, you know, their racial makeup. So. So I do think it's a part of you. It's not going to define me. So at the same time, I say, yes, recognize my race, but don't define me by it. Yeah. 
you've got this incredibly diverse set of experiences and, and challenging experience that you grew up with to draw from. You've got this rich uh, anime and video game culture that you pull from. What is your creative process for keeping that wellspring going for, you know, continuously creating new ideas? How do you keep yourself refreshed creatively? Well, it used to just be, you know, the general process of my workflow, whereas three months of the year I'm at home, there's not a lot of touring going on. And then the rest of the year I'm out doing shows. So being out traveling, whether it's uh, tours in the fall or summertime Comic-Con season, so it's just weekend gigs, you know, that keeping me busy separates my creation side of my brain from the performance side of my brain. Um, which allows each of them to get rest, you know. But uh, so when I'm at home now, I'm like, oh, boy, I get them all mixed up now because I'm I'm not able to perform. So I came up with a way to kind of kind of get that out of my system, which was through live stream concerts. Myself and a few other nerdcore guys, Shea for the Dark Lord, MC Lars, MC Frontalot, we started doing live uh, performances, you know, whether on YouTube or wherever. We just set up a green screen. We'd rap. We'd we'd uh, communicate with the chat, and it, and it really helped to scratch that itch of being in front of a crowd and getting live feedback. You know, mm-hmm. and um, I don't love it. I got to be honest. I d- I do not. I'd prefer a real crowd. Um, there are some times where I have this bad habit of reading the chat while I'm performing, and <laughs> I should never do that because it can throw me off. Uh, it can make me forget what I'm going to say. It can make me upset that they're talking about what they ate for dinner while I'm like wrapping my heart out, you know, or things like that. So I try not to, to, I try to limit distractions, but, um, but yeah, I think honestly my workflow is, it seems whenever something cool happens, like whenever there's a cool new creation or, um, just, I'm just, we're just lucky to be in a time where there's a lot of great media content, at least for me. Because um, I'll hear a new theme song and be like, oh, that's dope. I want to try to use some of those sounds in what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I, a new show comes out and I'm like, oh, well, let me go revisit it, revisit the old one and things like that. So I feel like with pop culture being one of my pretty, pretty major references points, um, it makes it easy because there's almost like an infinite well of creativity um, based on my past as well as the present and future, you know? Yeah. I, uh, it seems like one of the recent examples that I was looking at your YouTube channel and you, uh, you're doing sort of a freestyle rap over the masters of the universe theme song, which I remember from many years ago. Um, and, and so obviously that just came out on Netflix and you not only have a freestyle rap video, but you also launched a podcast about that sort of, again, spinning off of pop culture and, and creating more content for your fans. I did. I did. I really liked the show and I just wanted to discuss it with someone. So my friend Marcos was, was down. And so we just sat and talked and then I was like, Oh, this should be a podcast. You know, like there was some funny stuff. There's some references and some cool stuff. Like, you know, so I was like, all right, let's, let's just do this and see how it happens, (laughs) you know? And uh, so far the, the feedback's been great. So uh, maybe we'll continue it. You know, um, we've been talking to a few folks who have worked on the show. Uh, Bear McCrary, who did the soundtrack. Uh, we're going to interview him next, as well as some other folks. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's kind of building a life of its own. You know, I started this thing called Freestyle Fridays, top of this year, where, like, every Friday, if I was inspired, I'd write a new rap about, hmm, like a song about a show about a game, but also about current events. And I'd work those all into the song. And, um, and so, yeah, the latest one was master of the universe. And then once I finished it, I was like, this is good. And the show's good. So let's, let's keep this going. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. Uh, Sort of getting technical here for a minute. I noticed when I, when I checked out one of the episodes, you're using Spotify's anchor platform. So I I use Bluehost for this, um, and I know you've run a couple of different podcasts over the years. Um, How do you how do you like the Anchor platform? And I understand you can also Spotify lets you incorporate audio tracks that are on Spotify, too, which is pretty unique. Yeah, I think that was the first thing that um, attracted me to it. Um, Problem is, if you 
use a Spotify clip, the episode is only available on Spotify. So then it won't uh-huh. go to Apple. It won't go to wherever else. So it definitely limits you. Um, but I think it helps people in, in a day and age where no one downloads things anymore and keeps things, you know, on their hard drive, you know. But with me, when I have a musical guest, I play some music from them. So I download the song and then I realize how difficult it can be to download an MP3 these days. <laughs> you know, like no one really wants you to do that. Uh, they want you to stream it. And uh, and so in order to do do it the, the best way, sometimes you got to just use the, the Spotify thing. But. I really like Anchor because it's quick and easy. You know, like if I weren't able to get to my home setup, I can record an episode on my phone, you know, with a with a decent enough headset and mic and it'll still sound good. Uh, I can still run it through a couple programs and get it, get the audio cleaned up. Um, I can split the audio in half and drop in an ad, which I actually get paid real cents from, you know, which I really appreciate. Because yeah. a lot of the others didn't necessarily give us that opportunity. Okay, awesome. Well, I, I may have to take a look at that. I think it's worth it. Try Prime One episode and see what happens. I mean, here I am shilling for for Anchor. But, uh, <laughs> move from your other place. Give it a try. You know, um, but you know, maybe try both one week and just see see what's easier. I'm really big on getting stats and numbers too, and I feel like a lot of the a lot of the hosts are not giving me the numbers I need. You know, yeah. and I and I, I have such a hard time digging through and I hate that process. I'm a musician. I want to see my stuff, you know, give me in the back office like you can you can give me this stuff. And even in music, there's so many hoops you got to jump through. I just found this whole new site, Song Stats, which now I have to pay monthly to get my real streaming numbers throughout the Internet because it aggregates, you know, Apple, it aggregates TikTok, YouTube, everything. And that's the only site I've seen that has done that. So otherwise, yeah, if I even my direct distributor who I paid to put my money into all these places can't give me an accurate number of how many times it's been played in all these different places. So um, and then they like give you these little like rewards like, oh, wait, you didn't know you're in the top 40 in the Netherlands for comedy albums right now. You know, like they'll just tell you that in real time. And uh, so, yeah, it's pretty special, but I haven't found anything like that for podcasting yet. But um, but the closest, I think, is Anchor for the stats that they're able to to produce for me. Interesting. OK, yeah, that's uh, it's important to pay attention to your metrics so you know where advertising and your efforts and everything else are working. I I was digging into my own metrics for this podcast and I was pretty fascinated the other day because I discovered that. About forty percent of my listeners are in India, um, yeah. which I, you know, I wasn't expecting. But I think that's phenomenal. So I'm hoping to get some more, uh, maybe some Indian producers on here. Um, yeah. Great idea. You you talked you touched a little bit on your studio setup. You talked about um, uh, if you can't be at your studio, you know, you can record your podcast on your mobile phone and that sort of thing. So tell me a little bit about your your technical setup and and how you record your vocals obviously as as a rapper that is sort of the part and soul of your song talk to me about the vocal processing oh man i have been through so much it's funny i just did an interview with cnn about my home setup and Mm -hmm. um and it just literally changes from week to week but right now i have a pretty good rhythm with what i'm doing except for the fact that my laptop got stolen this past weekend out of the car in uh la I saw that. I am so sorry. (laughs) No problem. So at home, I have a I have a rough setup. So if I get some last minute, really good, you know, ideas for uh, words, but I don't really but I don't think I'm going to be able to keep the melody. I'll just write it down and record it really quickly. So at home, I'm using uh, what do I have here? I have Reaper, which I really love. Prior Mm -hmm. to that, I was using a lot of Logic Pro and um, I, I still use Logic once in a while when I'm on a Mac, but, uh, but on PC, I really love Reaper. Um, so I'll, I'll record here with that through an audio technica AT 2020. Um, and then if I'm DJing, I have a small little pioneer, uh, DDJ SB three, um, and a sure SM 58 beta wireless mic, which also was stolen. Uh, I'm thinking of all the things I got to replace. Um, and right now, uh, but I go into a studio. There's a great studio, maybe not even two miles from me, 
uh, my guy Felix runs. And so once a week, I go in there with him when I got to do professional stuff. So I'm doing my audiobooks there. I record my albums there, all that. And that's in a professional setup with Pro Tools 12 on an iMac. Um, the vocals are done on a Neumann U87. Um, really great mic, a beautiful one of my favorites. I hate the way my voice sounds. And it's the only microphone that I like <laughs> the way my voice sounds on. Uh, it's the U87. Um, at home, I make beats occasionally on Reason, uh, Reason 11, and uh, a little Akai mini uh, MPK keyboard that uh, I make like the rough version of my beat on. And then I'll bring it to the studio, bring the big, bring the big guns and bring in some musicians to play over what I've already been trying to create and uh, things like that. So, yeah, that's my workflow. I start the stuff here in my office and then um, but I have to finish it occasionally unless it's like a super quick thing. Like if Masses in the Universe was coming out tomorrow or it's like tonight at midnight and it was 5 p.m., I was like, I'll be like, oh, boy, I got to record it at home, you know, because I got to beat the rush of the Internet. Uh-huh. So I try not to ever put myself in that situation. But there are times where like if I just know like current events are going to really kill right now. Like, I don't know when Trump was doing something ridiculous every week. I was like, okay, I got to get out a song about this right now. You know? Um, so that this, uh, this setup allows me to get things like that done immediately and like super quick. So, um, so yeah, that's my setup right now. Um, I also stream uh, on Twitch. So I'm, I'm using my PC for that. I'm on a AMD Ryzen uh, eight core processor PC, and I have um, I had the HyperX Quadcast microphone, but now I use my Audio Technica, my AT twenty twenty, which I'm on right now, uh, also for for video game streaming. Okay, awesome. What what about when you're collaborating? Because you've you've done a lot of collaborations with other artists, especially. Um, was listening to one the other day, Revenge of the Nerds 2. I, I, oh, I lost count of how many collaborators you had on that track. That the biggest collaboration song I've ever been a part of. Um, so that was MC Lars' song. Shout out to Lars. Um, I recorded my verse for that song two years ago, easily. Um, okay. And the song came out probably the first two, maybe, no. We started shooting a video about the first month of the pandemic. Um, and then it came out maybe six months after that. So um, basically when I asked him, I was like, dude, I recorded this two years ago. I don't even remember it. He's like, yeah, that's, that's how long I've been collecting pieces for this. You know, I'll, I'll just, I took my time and I got everybody I wanted and it just took a really long time. And, uh, and then the mix, I would imagine bringing in like 15 people from different setups with different amounts of dead air between them and the microphone different amount, different, uh, you know, room setups, different uh, reverbs, different all types of things to be able to make that song sound as as cohesive as they did, like major props to the engineer on that. And yeah, uh, yeah it sounds good. <laughs> it does. It does. It's I mean, you've, you've got a lot of terrific tracks out there and I understand that's MC Lars's track, but, you know, you sounded great on that one, too. Do you do you do a lot of your own mixing and mastering or do you typically uh, have the studio do that for you? Well, uh, my guy at the studio, Felix, my engineer is super talented, so I don't mind him engineering. Um, if I have time, you know, honestly, sometimes these things just happen so fast and I'm like, I got to do it myself and I'm decent at a mix and a master. I'm not great and I don't feel fully confident about it. So I wouldn't do it with like an album, but like, with like a freestyle Friday, I can, I can be a little more lenient with the quality because it's supposed to be kind of mixtape style anyway, you know, so I don't, I don't really mind it not being perfect. So I may mix one of those if I'm up against a time crunch, but more often than not, I have two people that mix and master my stuff. Uh, Felix and my friend, Matt Weiss out of LA, uh, AKA Storyville is a guy I've known most of my professional life um, from Philadelphia. And uh, he's moved out to LA. He's doing some real big things, but he always makes time for me. And, uh, and mixes my stuff if I need to. So he'll be mixing my next album, which is currently on Kickstarter. Okay, fantastic. I'll include a link to that uh, in the show notes page. Now, y- your last album came out just in May, didn't it? Maverick Hunters? 
Yes, Maverick Hunters is a collaboration EP, myself and novelist, uh, MC from Detroit, where we did, uh, I think, seven or eight songs, just kind of loosely based in the universe of Mega Man. I hadn't done any Mega Man things in so long. Like, I was actually trying to get away from Mega Man. Like, I, I just felt like I was becoming this one trick pony who was only known for, like, just Mega Man remixes. And so I stopped doing it. But then I met Novelist, and he's one, an incredible, you know, artist and lyricist, but also a huge fan of Mega Man. But not just any Mega Man. He's a huge fan of Mega Man Zero, who's like the opposite character alongside Mega Man in these games. So I was just like, well, what a coincidence that I would run into somebody who actually enjoys, you know, the sidekick, you know. So I think us doing a team up project is just perfect. So that's what we did. We did. We started working on it and it came out really well. He came to Phoenix. We did two videos together. Right now we're doing a remix competition. And so that'll probably be my next release. Technically, it'll be all of our best remixes for Maverick Hunters will probably come out on like a a band camp or something like that. And um, and then people will be able to download our favorite ones of the remixes because we're getting some great ones in. Are you still, uh, so I think this podcast is going to be coming out next week. Will you still be accepting submissions at that point? Is that something yeah. that I could? Mm-hmm. Okay. Absolutely. Awesome. Uh, um, definitely. Message me on any of the socials at Mega Ran and uh, tell me you're interested and I'll send over the, uh, the stems. Terrific. When's the uh, deadline for that? Well, we did say August 1st, but I think oh. that because <laughs> there's going to be a few more coming, I think we'll push it two more weeks. So August 14th. August 14th. Okay. All right. Cool. We talked a little about producing, but you, you mentioned that uh, your two favorite words are tour time and and you spend a good chunk of your time, most of your year, really doing the, either the uh, Comic-Con type uh, gaming convention tours in the summer. And then I guess more conventional tours in the fall. Is that right? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. Um, For the most part, like my falls are usually pretty booked up with touring springs as well. And then, those off seasons are weekend gigs like comic cons. Okay. What, um, talk to me about planning a tour. What, what goes into that and what would you, for, for newer artists that are just sort of starting to dip their toes into the touring world, what advice can you offer? Man. Um, well, as with most things with being a, a DIY artist, um, you can't be afraid of rejection, you know? So you have to be willing to send out, a multitude of emails and, and inquiries and be turned down on most of them. So you start gathering your, your bag of tricks, your tools, if you will. First thing is Google maps. You open up Google maps in one, uh, one tab, another tab, you open up an Excel spreadsheet. You write down the cities you like, and then the next tab you open up should be either your Spotify back office or if you're a podcaster, your anchor or whatever your back office is, find out who's playing your music and where they are. Now, write down your top cities, then get to a map, type in the city, find out what the next nearest town is around it. Then open up another app I, I um, keep in my bag of tricks, which is called IndieOnTheMove.com. Now, you open up Indie on the Move, and it's a complete independent venue database of the entire country. So once you find a city, you type in that city on Indie on the Move. You find a spot that's, you know, appropriate size wise for you. Don't try to play the 2000 person room when you have six listeners, Um, things like that. You build that together and you just kind of start plugging in things. You just plug in and then you send off a bunch of inquiries and you try to make make these connections if you can. And um, to me, I love it. Like it's, it's such a challenge. But like I get such a kick out of it, you know, like getting a yes and being able to I, I color code my Excel sheet. So once I can color a city green, like, yeah, got it. You know, it feels <laughs> great. Um, but to me, those are my um, my best tips, I think, for starting a tour. But just got You got to be realistic. Like, don't think you're going to go out and, you know, pack out a, a stadium your first time out. Also, don't think that some big, amazing band is going to just take you out on the road just because you're cool, you know, sometimes they might, but they might not. So you got to be ready to do it yourself and uh, just be ready to impress, you know, like just kill it, you know, whenever you can. And um, 
Yeah, I think that's that's my process. I mean, nowadays I'll call a person like I, I have plenty of contacts I've made over the years. So most of the time I know the people I need to talk to, but I also will get and maybe hire a, um, you know, an agent or just, a, you know, a person who does booking to do some of the legwork so that I can still go out and create and, you know, have fun. You know, sometimes it's better to just have someone who's an expert at it kind of speak for you because I don't think that a lot of places are going to answer calls of people that they have no relationship with. So hence a lot of being ignored or rejection. Sure. When, when you are reaching out directly yourself, um, what sort of details do you provide in your email or phone outreach? Oh man, I find the biggest, most amazing piece of press that has talked about me. And I mentioned that first. I'll say, okay. Hey, would you like to meet Megaran? LA Weekly said he's the next rapper to blow. And now <laughs> LA Weekly said that in 2014. However, <laughs> uh, you don't mention that date. <laughs> I don't mention that date. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I think it's important to, or I'd say Guinness World Record holding, you know, artist Megaran. So you find the biggest piece of, you know, chunk of headline material and, uh, and lead with that. And uh, and just hope for the best, you know, or if you have a friend, they have a mutual friend, like mention you're a friend of a person who told you to contact them, you know, um, whatever will make them keep reading. And uh, but it's got to be in the first line, like you got to hit them immediately. OK, that's good. And then and then uh, the rest of it, I mean, I guess in the first emails, you're not trying to negotiate fees or anything. You're more just trying to get them to say yes. At you first. just want a response. That's the first thing you want. Sometimes <laughs> Please I'll, don't ignore this email. <laughs> sometimes I'll just leave out a detail, like I, the date I want. I'll leave it out just so the person, if they're interested, they'll be like, so what date are you looking for? And I'm like, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the email works, you know. Um, so, but I, but they do say provide as much information as you can. Like give them the day you want, the 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 time of the day, the your expected draw, your, you know, your plan for promotion. Give them as much information as you can. Um, and links so they can hear you, of course, but you can, you could try to leave some things out, you know, and just hope for a response, you know, that might work, but, um, but I think you should give them as much as possible. So is that kind of the process? Did you hire somebody for, you've got a tour that's coming up now, the four eyed horseman tour. Yes. Uh, what did you hire somebody for that? Or did you guys book that yourselves? Uh, Lars is booking agency handled that for all of us um we we came to them together we told them what we wanted where we wanted to go and they were like we'll try to make it happen so they worked they bust their behinds throughout the pandemic trying to make this work with some you know got to the point where some venues that they thought we had booked weren't existing anymore or they had sold to live nation or things like that so um i give them so much so many props uh big big ups to feta booking for making this tour happen despite all the the madness you know and um so yeah they set it up where we have three legs now where we get to come home for like a week between the legs of the tour which is awesome like i've never mm-hmm. had, never got to do that before so you know they're all like i think they realize like we're older now you know lars has a baby you know again we have families so it's like being away for three and a half four months is just not acceptable anymore so I think I, I give them so many thanks for accommodating those needs, you know. That's terrific. And I guess, I mean, it gets that much more complicated when you've got four of you going on tour instead of just one. Oh, yeah. It's super easy when it's just me. But when I have to <laughs> account for someone else and how much gear are they bring in? Are they bringing a drummer? Can they drive? Do they have a license? Can You know, there, there's so <laughs> many things to think about. Do they have uh, felonies on there? record you know there's just so many things to think about um when you got four people uh so but when it's just me man i don't think about anything i just i just do it you know but at the same time like i'll maybe take shortcuts i'll maybe you know take losses you know that i can handle but i would never want to bring someone else in on something like that you know yeah you take those so, for yourself but yeah maybe not for everybody Give me your pitch for the tour. What what should people expect if they come to the Four-Eyed Horseman performance? Wow. Okay. This tour represents um, collectively like over 30 years of combined touring that all of us have done. You know, we have been 
up and down these roads. We've seen it all, done it all. And uh, and I think that the shows have are, are tightened to a point where it's going to be so, so airtight. You know, you're going to get funny songs. You're going to get sad songs. You're going to get songs that make you think, songs that make you dance. And uh, we're also playing songs together for the first time. So in addition hmm. to getting four separate sets from me, Frontalot, Schaefer, and Lars, you're also going to get a combined moment and a set where we get to play you exclusive songs that no one's heard yet, except for a few people who have been coming to our um, online shows over this year. So you get a lot of exclusive material as well as performances that have never been done ever. Wow. Sounds amazing. And and I guess everything has been coordinated virtually or have you guys started doing, are you guys in the same, do you guys all live in Phoenix? No, no. Mm-mm. Okay. All right. So this is uh this is all virtual performance and preparation and yeah, we we're going to do, we, we we're going to get together like a day before the tour starts and really like go hard together and knock them out. But, but most of the time we've been doing virtual kind of practice stuff that has uh, gone really well. So I'm looking forward to this. Um, it's going to be great. We're all flying out to, it starts September 4th in Portland, Oregon. So we're all flying out there together or maybe to Seattle and then Portland. Uh, but we're going out to the Northwest regardless. And uh, it's going to be great. So I, I just absolutely can't wait. I may cry the first time I'm on stage. I almost know for certain I'm going to. Okay. I see you're coming to Atlanta September 28th. So yeah. uh, I may have to see what I'm doing that night. So hey, hope to see you there. You've got that going on, and then you've got a new album coming out. Uh, when when did you say that was? This album is coming this fall, hopefully by October. Uh, there is currently a Kickstarter happening right now for it. Just want to fund the the videos and the promotional plans that we have for it. It's called Live 95, and it will be coming soon. Okay, terrific. Well, I will have links to all of that in the show notes. Um, uh, where where can people find you online, Mega Ran? Oh, that's easy. I guess uh, type Mega Ran anywhere. Uh, M-E-G-A-R-A-N. Um, it looks like Meg Ryan when you're looking real quickly and not paying attention. So you're probably going to say, oh, I thought that said Meg Ryan. But no, it didn't. It says Mega Ran. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm at Instagram at Mega underscore Ran. I'm on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Mega Ran, all one word. Um, and uh, Twitter at Mega Ran. And you can get music at MegaRanMusic.com. You can get merch at MegaRanMerch.com. And you can see our tour dates at mayorin.com slash shows. Fantastic. You've done that a few times. <laughs> Just a few times. <laughs> Just a few. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time tonight, Mega Ran. I really appreciate it. And uh, uh, good luck on the tour and good luck with your new album. Dude, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening. I'll have links to all of Mega Ran's socials on the show notes page at producerlifepodcast.com. Just look for episode 80. If you're interested in his remix contest, remember the deadline is August 14th. So DM him on his socials for the stems and let him know you heard about the contest on the Producer Life podcast. Also, don't forget to leave a rating and review wherever you're getting your podcasts. Until next time, this is the House Ninja reminding you to be somebody's hero today.